Greetings. Welcome to Raising Rochester, the Children's Agenda's periodic podcast about the issues that matter most to children and families with the leaders who are making a big difference, improving their lives every day. I'm Larry Marks, CEO of the Children's Agenda, and today we are thrilled to welcome Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, the president and CEO of the National Children's Defense Fund based in Washington, D.C., Welcome, Reverend Wilson, to Raising Rochester. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. I'm glad to be with you. Glad to be in the conversation. And you're no stranger to Rochester audiences, having spoken here, I guess, back in February of this year at our friend's Spiritus Christi Church, giving an address about a vision for improving children's well-being. So, and we met briefly in person then, but I wonder if you could please start off by giving our listeners just a brief overview of the mission and history of the Children's Defense Fund. Sure, glad to. Uh, It's a timely opportunity to do it. Uh, So we are uh, sitting here in 2023 at the 50th anniversary of the Children's Defense Fund, uh, having served two generations of America's children. Uh, CDF was born out of uh, the contemporary civil rights movement and the anti-poverty movements and really grown through uh, Meriden Wright Edelman's leadership in partnership with women's movements in the U.S., always with a focus on advancing and improving the well-being of children. And today our mission is to build communities so young people grow up with dignity, hope, and joy. Our focus there is a broader vision of a nation where marginalized children flourish, where leaders prioritize their well-being and communities wield the power to ensure that they thrive. If I had to kind of categorize one of the ways I talked about CDF history is that CDF 1.0, having grown out of the Washington Research Project, uh, which was planted in 1969, and then really, as Ms. Zellman says, uh, the grandchild of the Poor People's Campaign Hmm. of Martin Luther King, uh, was that our early work was really around research, uh, making sure we exposed the realities of the life circumstances of children that were being ignored by examining closely the life conditions, uh, providing research papers to make that reality known across population level, and then advancing public policy to make sure that uh, legislators and policymakers paid attention to children's interests. That really grounded our work here in Washington, D.C. and across the country for the first 20 years of CDF's life. In the 1990s, particularly the early 90s, when uh, folks like me were Uh, in high school, I say this, CDF was working on my behalf, there was a broader kind of movement-focused orientation of the CDF to begin to establish state offices across the country to take this work, policy advocacy, into state capitals, but also to establish something called uh, the Black Community Crusade for Children, uh, which is really an organizing orientation, planting and growing ideas like CDF Freedom Schools, an out-of-school time intervention for literacy and leadership development, birthing ideas uh, at Haley Farm, like the Harlem Children's Zone, place-based initiatives around children's holistic well-being, uh, but also starting organizing efforts like the Black Church Initiative and the Black Student Leadership Network to organize specific communities to build power around children's work. And so I think those categorize kind of the first generation, second generation of CDS work and the second generation really evolving from the first, growing from the first. 
And now our challenge and our charge is to look to the future and focus more explicitly on building out uh, that full portfolio of the global children's rights movement, right? Children's rights is principally about protection, provision, and participation uh, of young people's voices. And so in as much as those first two from a policy standpoint were about protection and provision, uh, now we're really focused a lot more on how do we lift young people's voices and have them uh, to be the primary voices that are engaged in the discussion uh, for policy program and power building. That is in so many ways a role model for our work here at the Children's Agenda, a combination of power building, the advocacy and legislative side, and also the research and communications piece, lifting up the moral necessity of making the changes our children need most. Indeed. I mean, we're, we're excited, frankly, to be have been partnered there. I know you all do work with our New York office and to have been great partners in the past. And so we're glad to be in this conversation uh, because none of us, of course, get this work done alone. So it's, it's critical for us to have partners at all levels to advance the interests of our young people. Tell us about your story, Reverend Wilson. You grew up in Texas, worked in St. Louis immediately before taking on the leadership mantle at the Children's Defense Fund. Connect the dots for us. How does a minister, racial justice activist, (laughs) philanthropist become the leader and only the second one in its history of the Children's Defense Fund? Well, they figured if you have a leader as as, uh, significant, as powerful as Mrs. Edelman, you got to choose you really need three or four to fill the gap. So you choose somebody who does a couple of jobs at a time. And so, uh, so yeah, I did grow up in, in Dallas, Texas. And part of my origin story is really around the formation uh, in a family that needed a lot of what CDF was responding to uh, at the time. So I was a public school student, uh, mostly in magnet schools there in Dallas. But my family, of course, was not exempt from some of the challenges that that Black community crusade the CDF was leading was responding to, whether that was community violence that visited our home, my family taking my brother away from us, or pregnancies that came earlier in life than than some of my siblings would have wanted to help their trajectory long-term, or the challenges of school districts. And so, and as much as uh, that my mom worked hard on as a volunteer with the Parent Teacher Association and with the school board. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was a kid that CDF what you know saw before CDF knew me there in Dallas, uh, responding to some of those same same challenges, but held up by the same institutions that CDF was promoting. Uh, so between the Black family, the Black church, and historically Black colleges and universities, which is where I kind of launched into at Xavier University in New Orleans, these were the same institutions CDF was partnering with to respond to the challenges that were happening in my life. So coming forth from there, I thought I would study, uh, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And uh, so I went to a magnet school that focused on government law and law enforcement in Dallas. I went to Xavier University in New Orleans as a political science major and began to discern a call to ministry in the middle of all the debauchery of New Orleans, right? And all, like, <laughs> not the place where you think you're going to go and, and uh, find a deeper relationship with the Lord. But that's that's what happened in my, in my reality uh, and began to also get a sense of a broader call to service in that place. Uh, so that's where I began to put together the pieces of a life committed to a theological reflection and faith and a life of service. And coming forth from there, I worked with different nonprofits like the United Way and the Urban League that gave me the opportunity to do those things professionally 
while volunteering as a youth pastor in multiple churches. And so it was really those journeys together, always being bivocational for most of my career, that I was able to serve in the life of the church and serve nonprofits that crystallized for me uh, at a moment about nine years ago now in St. Louis with the, uh, the death uh, of Michael Brown Jr., where at the time during that Ferguson uprising, I was working pastoring a church and leading a philanthropy focused on child well-being, uh, racial justice in the St. Louis metropolitan region, uh, where, you know, I have a, this sense, Larry, that like we're always formed in moments for moments. Yeah. Um, so all the things that I'd experienced from youth ministry in urban congregations to fundraising with the United Way to an orient to my own life experience of losing my brother come together to make meaning in the midst of an uprising. And at that time of trying to be responsive to young people's voices and to raise the banner of justice with and alongside them is when I was introduced to Children's Defense Fund formally, bringing some of those young voices to Washington, D.C., connecting with Dr. Edelman and finding a path to respond to the challenge through some of the programmatic and policy initiatives and organizing efforts of Children's Defense Fund. So it's been, you know, as, as the poem says, way gives on to way. And I've seen the formation, the seeds of formation over time come together, often in challenging times, uh, to open new doors for service. Speaking of moments, uh, this this moment societally, politically, is so different than 50 years ago when the C uh, Children's Defense Fund was founded in 1973. How are the strategies, tactics, messages of today? I know you spoke about CDF 1.0 and 2.0, but how would you see those strategies, tactics, and messages as different for those of us seeking systemic change in 2023 from the founding? Yeah, I think a couple of challenges, a couple of the evolutions, I will say, uh, in strategy respond to different shifts in culture. First, one of the ways that our founder exhibited significant leadership is through moral suasion. And in an America of the 1970s that is more Christian than pluralistic and is more centered around the structures even of a, a certain moment in Christendom, uh, one can articulate a moral cause and a moral call in a different voice than one can do so today. And so while interestingly, CDF has shifted from a powerful lay preacher and lawyer in leadership to a clergy person, it has also done so in a time when, when the world is less religious. And so I think a lot of the work that we've done, and this builds on the work that Dr. King did uh, and Ms. Zettelman did beside him, was making a moral call using language that is much more familiar to people as narrative strategy to make room for public policy advocacy. And that pluralistic environment now calls us uh, to be more thoughtful about where moral authority is grounded. And so my sense and our strategy suggests that the moral authority is not with religious voice, but it is rather grounded in lived experience. The moral call to shift policy comes from the voices and experiences of the young people who are impacted by it. And so that impacts both our narrative strategy that is still in the line of, of the, the project of moral suasion, but it grounds it in a different way that is not as religious in its tone 
but seeks to reach out and tap into a sense of the right and the common good uh, that is much more, uh, much more broadly understood. Uh, I think that's significant. The other is, of course, we have more complex and intersecting challenges to, uh, to deal with. Uh, some people say, I've heard people say in analyzing this, you know, Martin King didn't wrestle with mass incarceration. And thus, the analysis of the complexity of these wicked problems require calls for something different from us. And so as we come into this, we are called to understand how the fight for body autonomy for women actually intersects with the fight for economic mobility for children. We are called to appreciate that housing policy from the 1980s and 90s actually continues to impact desegregation and family construction so that we don't look negatively at families who are responding to policy and making decisions that we make differently in our privilege. And so our analysis requires an intersectionality that we have not always owned in the past. And the last thing I'll say related to this is that those two things together, a more pluralistic world making a moral call different and more sophisticated, and uh, a, an analysis of intersectionality calls us then to a different posture of solidarity. Mm-hmm. We've got to find a way to throw in and rock with uh, people who we, wouldn't, we would not have seen as natural partners before on issues, because the reality is it's the same people. Uh, I, I a colleague, now late colleague named Rich Patton, in St. Louis, who for years led an organization called the Vision for Children at Risk. He was one of these remarkable policy wonks who knew every stat, had every map, uh, and knew everything about the realities of marginalized children in that community. We are are lesser for his loss a few years ago. But Rich would say something about the maps around concentrated poverty in St. Louis and the maps around educational achievement gaps and the maps around housing desegregation in communities. He said the housing map and the education map and the insecurity map is the same map. So these are the same people, but they're dealing with different challenges. And so we can't, to say it like Ms. Edelman said, young people don't grow up in pieces. Uh, So we've got to find solidarity with people who are in other elements of the struggle. You know, Actually, before we met in person, you were on a conference call with the Partnership for America's Children leadership, and I was part of that group. And you had just started, I believe, at the Children's Defense Fund, and we're speaking conceptually about what's come to be known as targeted universalism, the John A. Powell line of thought that has been so influential, actually, on our thinking, too, about how we approach our work and the need for policy change that both is in the self-interest of majoritarian coalition in our world, but is especially focused on lifting those who are most commonly left out. And with us, we changed our mission statement several years ago to talk about our special commitment to children who are most vulnerable because of poverty, racism, health inequities, and trauma. And again, we sort of are following in your footsteps. Well, I mean, I think it's it's a great gift uh, for all of us to uh, to recognize this evolution. You know, our credit. So we talked about the partnership. So Rich was a part of that kind of partnership and for that voices world. Mm-hmm. He was that kind of 
light in our community in St. Louis and, and held a broader table in Missouri uh, around that work. Uh, really excited about the uh, new leadership there, the partnership and its evolution and growth as well. So congratulations to the network uh, on, on that transition. Uh, but I think it's really important for us to, to do exactly as you're modeling, to learn from one another, to be in exchange in these varying roles and to bring some of the thinking that we're able to engage in one place to others. You know, my, my greatest challenge, Larry, uh, or one of the great challenges I'll speak of in my career, the first was like going from uh, pastoring a church in a, in, a, in a challenged community on that same map that Rich talked about and doing youth ministry with young people who were so challenged by all of these issues that they had a distrust of nonprofits that came because mm-hmm. their analysis was so clear that they recognized that nonprofits show up when they get new grant money and they mm-hmm. leave when they get when the grant money is gone. Right. So the great challenge for me going from that to serving at a philanthropy that was giving out the grant money was my sense of comfort and privilege that we could have well-resourced, well-resourced, well-researched conversations about the problems in philanthropy in a way that never really touched the ground. That was my number one challenge. Nine years later, when I came out of philanthropy, coming back to CDF and coming back closer to the work, I'd already been a volunteer with CDF in different ways, but coming into nonprofit setting, I realized part of my challenge of the last three years is that I miss these well-researched, well-resourced conversations and learning. And so we're not resourced enough as child advocates, as community organizers, as policy advocates to engage in the conversations far enough upstream. And so here is a challenge, a challenge of solidarity I like to invite funders into is that you're learning things that your grantees should be learning and should know before you, frankly, because Mm -hmm. we've got a plan for that up the road. And so this kind of sharing is really critical and important. And it's one of the things that I'm trying hard to hold on to because so many of the interventions that we advocate for on the Hill or in capitals across the country were innovated with philanthropic support 20 years ago. And so it's important for us to try to stay on the on the edge, whether we're talking about targeted universalism uh, or whether we're talking about child savings accounts, uh, college savings accounts, the child development accounts. Uh, we've got to be in the conversation sooner so that we can begin to fight for these things. Average policy battle is going to take us five to seven years anyway. We got to get closer to the beginning of these interventions and put them on the table before they've frankly been compromised by political engagement and discussion. That's so true. Thank you for those words. My experience is social change is more like a six-lane highway that it's hard to tell at any one point in time which which lane is the fast lane. Um, but what we require are cars that include both truth and well-researched information. We need the moral high ground, and we also need power. We need uh, the voices of people whose lived experience is the problems that we're trying to address. And that matters to elected officials. The number of people and the amount of potential campaign donations and all of that, that's real power. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And you said it right. Like We can't compromise one for the other. It's not about choosing one or the other. It's about having more arrows in our quiver. How do you see the role of 
What's the, you mentioned in CDF 2.0, the move towards more state level work, which is certainly where we have our, our footing. And what, what do you see as, given the intractability of so many of these problems of systemic racism, endemic poverty, and enduring inequality and violence in people's lives, how do you see state capitals and even local work as having any kind of reason for hope in in that? Yeah, this has been part of the interesting um, kind of reflection for me in moving to Washington, D.C. from St. Louis and having lived in Texas and, and New Orleans. It's that I, I see even more, I've experienced this great, I have this kind of chasm in me. I feel much less proximate. I have to work harder mm -hmm. uh, to be proximate to, to challenges. And, and what I've found is it is at that level of community connection that I find the most hope. So we're, we're really blessed to have this network of freedom schools that operate in 30 states across the country. So when I go to a freedom school location with a community partner and I am talking to parents about and caregivers about uh, what their hopes are for their children and what the challenges are that stand in front of them and what they want us at CDF to work on, I actually get the greatest energy and hope mm. from that, frankly, more from that than from what I find the more articulated uh, intractability, which is that of the Senate and democratic process here, holding up significant shifts and uh, shifts in uh, opportunities in legislation. And so I find the crisis here in our nation's capital to be more challenging than the situation that I find in the community. The other thing that I find that I have to reflect on very often is we have a willingness to forget places. And even those of us in the social sector who are called to and come from some of these places have a willingness to forget them for easier places to work. Folk are really, you know, I find a lot of folks who would rather be in California and New York than spend time in Tennessee and Mississippi. Mm. And I say, well, look, we, we came. There's a reason why, right? The same challenges that we hear about now around these intractable issues of racism and the intransigency of white supremacy that manifests itself in the state capital in Tennessee in the last week, or in the challenges of races in, in Mississippi that are coming in front of us are the reasons why CDF exists. And so we are called to those places, perhaps even more than being called to some of the places where our arguments can be heard more, re more readily. So for me, again, I find hope and I find missional grounding in the places where we hear of these difficulties in this moment. And I feel a sense of obligation to those places um, so that we can create the kind of groundswell to make change in this nation's capital. I, I also think we've got to open the aperture uh, in our conversation around children, Larry, and be more explicit. And we're trying to create pipelines to transform those places because we want the young people that we're developing to be the leaders in those places. I, I want to be able to look toward the day where I say that a young person who was trained in CDF Freedom Schools or in our young, uh, young, uh, act, uh, young advocate leadership training program or our Black Student Leadership Network holds the gavel in some of these capitals and state houses as we're able to point to folks from a prior generation or current generation like Michael Tubbs, who uh, was the mayor of Stockton, California, 
and was trained in leadership there on the Alex Haley Farm. I think that's how we want to transform some of those places as well. So that movement building orientation that starts at the ground and impacts capitals is also a part of our long-term strategy and sense for hope. I so resonate with that about young people taking leadership in their own hands. There, I, sometime you're next in Rochester, I want to introduce you to a young man, Isaiah Santiago, who has been an activist with us since he was in high school and was elected as the youngest person to the Rochester City School District uh, Board of Directors and is actually going to be chairing our upcoming Child Poverty Town Hall. Yeah, he's he's an amazing guy with the bright future. And he he does, I, I know what you mean about hope. He, he gives me a sense of hope. I'd love to meet him. I look forward to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's, he's really excellent. You know, this year also marks the 50th anniversary of the annual observance of the Children's Sabbath, which the Children's Defense Fund organizes nationally. And we, along with Children's Defense Fund New York and others organize at a local level. And I'm curious if you could talk to our listeners about what the Children's Sabbath is, why it's important in your mind to engage the faith community in multi-faith observance and advocacy. Yeah, so the Children's Sabbath, um, not quite for us 50 years. So 50 years for us uh, as CDF, uh, more like 30 years for the Children's Sabbath that we've been engaging directly. And this year, we're focused on this theme of a little child leading them uh, and a little child shall lead them. So this text uh, that we share, uh, I'm, you know, I'm pastor in the Christian tradition, but I always say, you know, we've got these big brothers and sisters and radical monotheism in the Jewish tradition. So this, this, this text that we borrowed in Isaiah from our big brothers and sisters in, in, in the Jewish tradition, uh, those of us in the Christian tradition, where there's this narrative in Isaiah about a child in this kind of cosmic state, this ideal picture of the peaceable community where lions and lambs lay down together. Um, but there's this other thing about it, Larry, that just before that passage, there's a passage in the text about a promised leader for the future. So there's just all this stuff about a leader that's coming that's promised. And then there's like a shift in the text where we begin to paint a picture of a toddler in the middle of this peaceable community where these idealistic things are happening in the same place. It seems almost cartoon-esque. And this year we decided to focus the Children's Sabbath on this idea of children leading to put those two passages back together again. Mm -hmm. Then the same chapter, I, I, again, I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm not a biblical scholar, but I am a preacher, uh, which means I get to play around with the Bible. <laughs> uh, we have these unnecessary and sometimes arbitrary divisions in sacred texts. And in this one, I find it unnecessary to separate the promised leader from the picture of the toddler doing mm. amazing things. Mm. I find it quite adultist to suggest <laughs> that the child couldn't be the promised leader. And I find a sense of hope in saying maybe the child can get things done that seem outrageous to us because the child has special capabilities that we don't have or somehow we have lost. And so this year, this theme, and a little child shall lead them, builds on our hope of recentering the promise of a child in community. And Children's Sabbath broadly seeks to do exactly that. 
over the course of this last generation of hosting Children's Sabbaths, we have invited faith communities and people of faith across traditions to pause and pay attention to what's happening in communities around children and to consider um, how communities may be transformed by focusing on children's issues. And so that's what we're doing again this year. It is a great gift of, uh, of our kind of tradition, that movement era of CDF to create this national mobilizing opportunities for faith communities. And I think it's critically important. I said a little bit about narrative strategy before, but I think it's critically important because here in the U.S. and in the West more broadly, I think, frankly, this is a global phenomenon, but I can name it here, that even what we do in our nonprofit institutions that are in the social sector more broadly, these things that are secular in nature and our social visions are still deeply theologically informed, either explicitly or implicitly. And so um, if we're going to do the work of painting the picture of a world where a child who is thriving and sing and dance and be safe in a neighborhood and walk to the school bus without concern and learn in a school that is a sanctuary, we have to be able to paint the pictures so that people can see it. And faith helps us to do that. Mm. And so children's Sabbaths are a critical opportunity for us to paint that picture with people of faith so that we might inform the ambitious aspirations of all of our nonprofit institutions that are trying to craft a vision that needs to be informed by that faith. What advice do you have, Reverend Wilson, for the pastors, the imams, the rabbis, and other faith leaders here locally who are beginning to organize a, a children's Sabbath celebration? What, what advice would you give for a successful celebration? First, um, remember, it's, uh, you know, I come from black church tradition where we have children's Sundays and all that kind of remember, it's not children's Sunday, it's children's Sabbath. Uh, and so it really is an opportunity to examine issues and systems related to children. So I invite people to go uh, to childrensdefense.org. We have a toolkit for a child watch. Uh, so there are resources that people can use to go in, go into a community and you know, see what's going on in the education system, sit into sit in the school board meeting, come have opportunity to reflect on what's happening there, sit in the family courts, uh, be able to see how that's working and reflect on how that connects with your faith. That's number one. Don't just constrain it to a service that is focused on uh, young people, but also use the tools to go into community to respond to these issues. The second is don't just make it a weekend, but make it a start to a thing. As we are approaching this uh, this year, our team uh, for leadership development and organizing has engaged with partners to develop a set of resources that can be evergreen and used year round. So we're really beginning to think of Children's Sabbath as an opportunity. We may mobilize on that third weekend in October with folks around the country, building on what we've been doing for the last 30 years. But we also want to provide resources that whenever is appropriate throughout your calendar, uh, whether you follow a certain liturgical calendar or your traditions calendar, there are resources for you across these varying traditions that will live at childrensdefense.org as well, uh, so that you have those to begin a conversation where you continue to pull the thread. Or maybe you don't do it on the third weekend in October. That doesn't work for you. Um, you can do it in the second weekend in March next year, and you have plenty of time to prepare for that. So I encourage you to get out into community, use the Child Watch tool. I encourage you to open the aperture and be thoughtful about 
how you might extend this conversation throughout. And then I invite you to be thoughtful about how you embed this work in the life of your congregation, synagogue, or mosque. We want people not uh, to think about how they establish ministries of child advocacy within their faith communities. And we want people to be thoughtful about how they might be grounded in contextualized theologies of child well-being. What is, what is your hope for children in your community is a question we want to ask. And this is something we're also seeking the resource um, uh, with our staff team. We'd be glad to walk with people in that. We have a couple of cohorts of congregations who are working on this, including Spiritus Christi there uh, in uh, Rochester, walking through with other faith leaders uh, and faith communities what this would look like so that they might examine the realities of what's going on in their communities as well. And uh, as I say that, uh, while we're glad to be supportive of you, you have remarkable folks doing work in your community that we invite you to lean into uh, as well. You know, one of the things I'm so struck by the Children's Defense Fund mission statement as you gave it was talking about joy so openly. And uh, it always strikes me as a balancing act and attention in our work to both hold up joy and the potential for joy and the reality of joy alongside all the stuff that just makes us makes me cry all the time about the plight of kids and the inequities that black and brown children particularly face in this country and our systemic failures of addressing that. So I'm wondering, particularly for a religious service, it strikes me that you have to hold the tension somehow of those two things together, the need, frankly, necessity of joy, along with the deep understanding of how that's missing from so many kids' lives. Yeah, one of the things we're, we're finding, Larry, is, and this impacts our policy work as well, is that asset framing is absolutely critical and uh, it is, it's disciplined. Unfortunately, the research reminds us that people don't respond to problems. Mm. What they respond to is opportunities. And so even in our work, we've been doing some really uh, critical work, having redeveloped our theory of change and uh, being intentional about how we communicate broadly. We're beginning to name promise before we name problems. Mm. Uh, and then begin to show people a path through public policy. And the promise is this world where children get to sing and dance and experience joy first. And then we begin to name what's the barrier to that, right? Uh, so yes, I want my daughter who's uh, who, who celebrates her eighth birthday this month, I want my daughter to be able to play uh, freely in the park and walk down the street safely. And I know that the reason why she can't play in the park without me being deeply concerned uh, has to do with the potential of violence and an orientation to her public safety uh, that is not actually keeping her safe. And so uh, part of what I've got to present to people uh, as a religious person, as a policy advocate, is what's the positive hope-filled vision that we desire and then present what the barrier is to that before even wanting to pose a solution. Because we, we increasingly, uh, as we analyze, and we, which we must do, we turn people's ear away from our solutions because we've not pointed to them, uh, uh, given them the promise and the hope. And this is one of the great gifts of our religious traditions, right, yeah. is to name the hope 
to present us with a great and grand vision of that which is greater than we experience now. And as we do that and people turn their ear toward that hope, then we can begin to show them both the barriers and the path forward. And so that's really how we're seeking to work uh, at Children's Defense Fund. We will. You'll, you'll hear even more. Part of what we're talking about going forward, Larry, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a little news for our conversation. We'll, you know, this is part of what we're doing over the course of the next few months is we're going to talk less about leaving children behind. And we're going to talk more about unleashing the joy in growing up. Hmm. We're going to invite people to dance with children and to see children dance. And we believe that that joy-filled expression will inspire people to act in ways that our children need them to. We will paint a picture of a future where young people indeed flourish. And we believe that that picture will attract people who have not been engaged otherwise in the work of these intractable challenges. Um, This is our hope for years to come. And that's the way we're gonna try to engage this conversation. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's so profound, I think. And it's a lesson I find myself as an advocate for children always needing to relearn the asset-based framing as opposed to deficit-based framing. And that it's not fear and hate that win out in our work. It's going to be hope and joy. Indeed. Indeed. And, um, and I, you know, these are also things that our children deserve. This is a way for us uh, to begin to have that conversation about the moral calculus as well. Uh, the dignity is something that we all deserve. Uh, hope is something that should be a part of every life, not just survival uh, and joy. Uh, doesn't have to be, you know, I don't, it, it isn't exactly an everyday occurrence for me right now, Larry. Uh, but, but when it comes, yeah, uh, I decide I'm leaning in, man. Uh, yeah. and, um, maybe I'm getting uh, just a, just old enough in perspective uh, to be able to know that I got to cherish those moments. Yeah, they are uh, important. As I say that as a father who's about to drop his youngest off at the university again this weekend, that'll be quite a big moment. Uh, I, have my, I have my first drop off, first university. So my 18, we launched my 18 year old this year. So I just went that, through that for the first time, man. And it, um, it's a real rite of passage. It, yeah, it, it, it is, right? Thinking about my eight-year-old and my 18-year-old, yeah. there's a there's a whole range of, of life experiences and moments that come into perspective. And, and in as much as I have the occasion to reflect in this way and to smile even when you say it about, about your, uh, your young one uh, who is returning, we all every parent deserves this kind of joy and reflection and and so many uh, are robbed of it. Uh, yeah. So so that's our work. So that's true. Work. Thank you. Anything else, Reverend Wilson, you'd like our listeners to know? Just know that we're excited to throw in with the children's agenda. I'm sorry I get colloquial sometimes. I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so we like code switch. It's welcome uh, here. But we're, we're, we are pleased to stand in solidarity with the children's <laughs> agenda uh, and uh, look forward to more opportunities to, as John Lewis said, get in good trouble together uh, to make sure that from Washington, D.C. to Albany, folks are doing what's right for, for young people. And as much as we've been able to do this work together in the past, we are even more excited to do it together in the future. So we encourage folks in New York to 
to partner uh, with the Children's Agenda to, of course, do the same with CDF in New York as we seek to lean in together for all children in the state. And, of course, to amplify that work and, and explore some things in New York that we can't get done yet in Tennessee so that we can prove that it works uh, to take it to Missouri on the way. Like, this is what all this means, and it takes all of us. Yeah, we take setting the bar for the country seriously around here that we really do want to set a high standard. And of course, nothing happens by ourselves alone, individually or organizationally. It, it really, truly does take a village. And the more organizations and the more shoulders to the wheel, the more powerful we all are together. I, I just want to thank you so much for taking this time and the inspiration you've given me, I hope that spills out to our listeners as well, especially those who are organizing our upcoming Interfaith Weekend, the Children's Sabbath. It's a great launch pad for advocacy to come and the changes our children need. So thank you very much, Dr. Wilson. You got it. Thank you. We're with you. Mm-hmm.